shoes on. You're going to have to walk on this one because this is going to get your blood a-boiling. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. We're about to be out here stomping through the streets. We ain't even walking. We're about to be out here stomping and me mugging. Look, in honor of Phyllis no. Lee Morgan, I don't know if you saw, but Webster Dictionary just put fitna and child in the dictionary. I don't Listen. know if these two things are connected, but I feel like they are. It is. It is, because Phyllis Wheatley cared about the classical language, and Fitna is Black classical. So absolutely, <laughs> yes. Yes. One of our colleagues was like, I hate to admit it, y'all, but when I got that newsletter, Phyllis Wheatley was dark skin. I always thought she was light skin. I was like, listen, y'all, we've got so much to learn, and I hope that you learn with us today. Vanessa, I want to get into the conversation, girl. But All listen, that right. was Jay-Z. You want to say you made holes? Okay, well, make another hole is the spirit of today's conversation about Phyllis Wheatley, the first call to action. If you are a writer, please go on the Wikipedia page for Phyllis Wheatley. It is an open source resource Wikipedia and change that article. It's literally the most offensive Wikipedia page I have ever seen in my life, Vanessa. It just explains Phyllis Wheatley's story through the lens of her owners. Every paragraph starts with, well, Susanna educated her for years. And when Johnny took her to the Queen of England, what? Right. You mean when they didn't free her rewrite her that her page. thing? When they were enslaving her and she was forced to go along, even if it was to the queen? Okay. Welcome to Phyllis Wheatley 101. If you only know what I only knew about Phyllis Wheatley is that she wrote some poems, because that's what they told you during Black History Month when you were in fourth grade with that little drawn <laughs> picture. I'm going to tell y'all, you have been sorely misguided. Phyllis Wheatley, at the age of seven years old, was kidnapped from Senegal, West Africa. She was loaded into the bellies of a slave ship as a child at seven years old. 
she survived the Middle Passage. She only spoke her native language. She went all the way across this mighty Atlantic Sea that has taken the lives of so many of our ancestors, so many, in fact, that there is a bone of trails across the Atlantic from here to Africa. So many, in fact, that changed the migration pattern. I was getting ready to say, was that what you were getting ready to say, Morgan? That's what I was going to say, but come on. It's changed the migration pattern of sharks. She survived at seven years old. And what's crazy to me on Wikipedia is that not only did they tell us that the name of the slave ship was the Phyllis, but they told us the first and last names of the captains of the slave ship. We don't need to know the captain's Uh names of the slave ship on Phyllis Uh Wheatley's Wikipedia page. Uh She was brought into Boston Harbor and sold to a wealthy merchant in Boston who was progressive and liberal, but bought a seven-year-old African slave girl for his wife, Susanna. Listen, allies on the phone, pull up a chair today because you can be nice and not good. Mm -hmm. Stop enslaving us. Stop using us for your entertainment and your curriculum. Stop using us to diversify your friends, your playgroups. They bought this little girl to be a slave for his wife, Susanna. So then, Vanessa, I'm going to tell you what this little girl did. In six months, she didn't learn English. In six months, she mastered English because she was a genius. Mm-hmm. By the age of 12, she had mastered English, classical Greek, where she could read the classics in Greek, and Latin because she was a genius. Mm-hmm. They recognized she was a genius. They did not free her. They devoted all of their attention and money into making this girl a commodity. This genius seven-year-old girl that they stole. It is not unlike what happened at the Brooklyn Zoo, where they had a man from the Congo in the exhibit bars. It is not unlike what happened all across the country with Sarah Bartman, who they paraded around for having such a voluptuous body. This girl, superior intellect, became the talk of the town, not just in Boston, where she lived. Her first letter was written to Harvard University. And after she wrote that letter to Harvard University, all of the smartest, most brilliant minds in Boston, people you may know, like John Hancock, like other signers of our great constitution, did not believe that this African girl could possibly have written that letter. So they brought her in a room to study her, John Hancock. Every time you look at a dollar bill with John Hancock's signature on it, I want you to think that this man sat this little African girl from Senegal who survived the Middle Passage in a room to make sure she was as smart as everybody said she was. A group of white men sat around. Then they wrote a letter to include as the foreword in her book saying that we have attested that this girl is actually the person writing this genius. Now, when we talk about cosigning, we ain't talking about doubting our genius. Come on now, Vanessa. Right. So, this is what happened. By the time it was 1773, Phyllis Wheatley was the most popular and powerful African on the planet. And I got to thinking, Vanessa, I was like, was that the same time when Christmas Addicts was up in Boston? Because you know he I knew know, her. Right? She knew him. Right. I thought he got Jesse, right? Because that's the American Revolution. And she was in Boston. Yes. Boston was small. She was the most popular person. Well, this family 
the Wheatley family, because you know her name is Phyllis Wheatley, from the boat she rode in on called the Phyllis, and the family who bought her called the Wheatleys. Not the most creative name. <laughs> you know what I mean? They done stole this girl's right. name and gave her this stuff, right? But we're going to call her Phyllis Wheatley because she done earned that name now. She done said, okay, you're going to call me Phyllis? Call me Phyllis, right? So by the time she was 19 years old, published a book of poetry and became the first person of African descent in the new world to publish anything, man or woman. And she was only the third woman in America to publish. So she is a foremother of all American literature. Certainly feminist literature, definitely African-American literature. She was the first to publish a book. And what's crazy is Boston wouldn't even publish her book. She went to King George. Listen, Meghan Markle. Phyllis Wheatley went to King George and wrote a protest letter to King George telling him that he did the right thing when he repealed the Stamp Act. Now, we know the American Revolution. Go back and listen to the Christmas Addicts edition. It was great. We know what happened in the American Revolution, right? Well, one of the most important parts of the American Revolution is England started to repeal back taxation without representation, okay? And one of the taxes that they repealed was the Stamp Act. And what they was trying to do, they then sent these people over to make colonies. Half the people died. Then when they got the colonies established, England tried to tax at every turn the people in the colony. Mm-hmm. The people in the colony was like, no, we are going to revolt. We're going to stage a revolution called the American Revolution. So they started dumping tea over Boston Harbor. And the Stamp Act was one of the first taxes that was repealed from the British Empire against the new American colonies. And Phyllis Neely was like, Ben, I'm 19. I'm from Africa. Let me go ahead and write to King. She wrote the king a letter. The king invited her to England. She came into the royal court. She dazzled everybody with her command of Latin, Greek, and the Queen's English all over the newspaper. They were like, she is a specimen of the African continent, not unlike Josephine Baker, where they were just bedazzled by her genius and her light. You know, Vanessa, she did not stop there. No, she did not. She published her book. But you know what? Her liberal white family from Boston did not free this woman until after her book was published. Which let's just talk about ownership. <laughs> just saying, own yeah. your stuff, y'all. Copyright your stuff. Get your URL. Do whatever you got to do to own your stuff. Can I not even give a plug, Morgan? This is off of the track, but not off of the track. As a Washington, D.C. resident, I would just like to say that 700,000 D.C. residents still do not have representation. The push for D.C. statehood is a political push by which all Black people in this country should get behind because not dissimilar to the same actual concept of ownership and who gets representation versus who doesn't. It's all built in there. And the push against D.C. statehood is a push against Black voices in this country. So when you were saying that about the taxes and the stamp, I was just like, like right now, today, in 2021, I personally do not have representation in U.S. Congress. The type of oppression that happened is still happening every day in this country. So shout out to D.C. Mayor Bowser and the work that she's doing and everyone who has been pushing for D.C. statehood. Know and understand that we are in a time where anything politically can happen. So we should be hoping that the things and pushing for the things that happen land on our side, not in disbelief that they can happen. Sorry about that, Morgan, but the stamp back, no, I would like good. to. <laughs> no, I'm saying that's good. That's good, Vanessa. And I'm also saying let's make Phyllis Wheatley proud. Don't have her writing to King George back in the day about taxation and our representation. And we still up in D.C. can't vote. Y'all can vote. Precisely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we can vote, but it don't count, Merrily. No, let Carol College, all that stuff. But yeah, it's the same thing. You get it. 
Yes, yes, yes. So she was with the king. And even Voltaire, the classical masters at the time, Voltaire stated in a letter to a friend that Wheatley had proved that Black people could write. <laughs> That's so ignorant. I can't, I can't with Voltaire. I can't with these people. So she came back. This is the height of the American Revolution. And we know the first president of the United States of America was George Washington. Before he was a president, he was a general, and he came to fame by fighting the American Revolution. Well, when he was at his camp, Phyllis Wheatley wrote him a letter and was like, this one I'm going to need you to do to free the enslaved Africans. <laughs> she was the most popular person on the planet. So he was like, Madame, first of all, the first president of the United States, stepped to her correct and called her Madame and said, I would love for you to come and pay me a visit. And she came, she was, I think, 22 years old, consulted George Washington, talked about the issues of liberty and freedom for all. At 22, Vanessa, at 22, John right. Adams was a fan. At 22, having been stolen from her whole land at seven. So I'm just putting this into context <laughs> so that we're all following. <laughs> so we're all trafficked. Let me see something. I'm in the middle of the street going through my nose. It's ignorant. Let me get off the street because I want to find this exact quote. Here we go. Let me get off the street. I love this vision. I, I love the vision of you. And no, exactly. that's why I'm Okay, here we go. Thomas Jefferson, which we know, don't have me quoted on CNN. Y'all know who Thomas Jefferson was. You know who he is. Eye contact, eye contact. You know who he was. Sally Hemings, white supremacy. We know who Thomas Jefferson was. Thomas Jefferson, in his book, Notes on the State of Virginia, wrote this, Vanessa. Misery is often the parent of the most affecting touches in poetry. Among the Blacks is misery enough. God knows, but no poetry. Love is a particular ostrum of this poet. Her love is ardent, but it kindles the senses only, not the imagination. Religion, indeed, has produced a Phyllis Wheatley, but it could not produce a poet. The compositions <laughs> published under her name are below the dignity I of hate criticism. Her. I hate her. Below the dignity of criticism. Well, why you write about her in your book? Why you form your pen to write about her in your book? The woman who was named after the slave ship who brought her over from her childhood kidnapping. Yeah, so that he could formally discredit her genius and so that they can have a body of work and evidence that started to discredit all the genius that they saw budding up in the colonies. That's the truth of it. It is the truth of it. And so I started to read her writings, Vanessa. And one of the writings I was most compelled by is she wrote to this man who had found a way, some kind of through fare to Russia, some seaway through the north to Russia, and it made him the most wealthiest man of the 18th century. She wrote a letter to this man who then became the greatest philanthropist of the 18th century. And she wrote to the greatest philanthropist of the 18th century at 20-something years old and made a case for why he needed to support Black liberation. Do not reduce this woman to a poet. She's writing protest letters to the most powerful men on the planet, and they are giving her court. They are inviting her back because her words are so salient and cogent and beautiful and mastered and mastered. I'm deeply, deeply, deeply excited to talk about her today. Here's what we need to know about Phyllis Wheatley, though. After she was freed from the Wheatley family and Susanna passed away and the man passed away and she was on her own, Vanessa, she married a black man in Boston. The black man in Boston was a grocer. Somebody rewrite that Wikipedia page. It was like, he didn't know how to manage his money, so he went to jail for tax evasion or something. Somebody rewrite this lady's page. But she married this man. They had 
tragedy, Vanessa. They fell into deep, deep poverty. She lost her first two children. Soon after she passed away, at the age of 31, she suffered deep illnesses. She worked as a wash lady in Boston. So after being the most popular Black woman, paraded around in the King's Court, celebrated for her intellectual genius, she was a wash woman who, from her illnesses, died at 31 years old. And the only baby she bore, who was just an infant, died soon after her mother. It was rough times in the colonies then. It was rough times at the war. And she only survived for 31 years, for 31 years. But in that time, she redefined literature. She reshaped what was possible for Black genius and what the world knew and celebrated as Black genius. One of the things that I find so interesting about her is they talk about the fact that she used religion masterfully to paint pictures. Classicism, she had studied all the Greek classics, all the Latin classics, and she used that kind of prose. We'll play a little bit of her poetry in a little bit. It's just so beautiful. It's so sophisticated. I literally had to study it line for line. I had to read interpretations of what it actually meant to her poem on imagination. We'll listen to it in a second. I just sent a screen grab to Vanessa because, ooh, if God ain't trying to tell us something, Christianity, classicism, but also this deeply rooted African sense of sunshine and light and solar being the source of all healing. And I was like, didn't we just talk about Nefertiti? Didn't we just talk about the sun and the power of the sun, the brightness that we have inside of us? She wrote about it and she used all the Greek words for sun. But can you imagine coming from the West Coast of Africa and coming into the gloom of Boston, Boston. the freezing cold winters of Boston? So yeah, you would remember harvest. You would remember making hay while the sun shines. You would remember what it felt like for your skin to be sun-kissed and how that was rejuvenated and ignited your imagination. I want to talk about her name. I want to talk about everything I want to hear from you, Vanessa. Before we do that, though, in honor of Phyllis Wheatley today, I want us to do our level best to reignite our imaginations for what is possible in our lives, even in the darkest time of revolution, even in the deepest, darkest winters of our lives. Some of you are going through the deepest, darkest times of your life. I want you to fight for your imagination. I want you to fight for the light. I want you to sit in the windowsill. I want you to go at high noon on a walk by yourself. I want us to imagine again, because I will tell you when I was a teacher in Newark, it is the first sign of oppression is when our children stop imagining. I want us to imagine again and teach our daughters how to play and imagine and dance in the sunshine. And so she wrote this poem that you may have studied in junior high. It's the most studied poem by Phyllis Wheatley called On Imagination. And she essentially personifies imagination and hope. And she uses that personification and talks about imagination dancing through different natural environments. And then she talks about the winter coming and how unequal the winter lies on us. 
most scholars believe that she's talking about this fight between slavery, this oppression that just keeps holding us down, that every single time we try and get up, every time we get on the mountaintop, the winter comes. And this nasty, dark, cold oppression just tries to shackle us. And so I just want to play a little bit on that. And as I'm playing, she paints a picture. It's old English. You won't understand all the words. It's okay. She mastered Greek and Latin. Listen, we all get in there, Phyllis. You're not going to understand We, we mastered Finna and Child. <laughs> So we got to catch back up to Phyllis. We're going to catch back up. But I want That's you to why let she's from the future. Her. That's why she's a cosmonaut, by the she way, Morgan. You see what future. I'm saying? We're catching back I up think... to Phyllis, who was telling us in 1700, and then somehow we got on Finna and Chow. But we're about to marry all of them back together and have a new We're going to marry her. Listen, listen. That's exactly right. But I do want you to let her words wash over you as you start to look to the horizon of your life, look to what is possible around you, look beyond the horizons that you've set for your life. And I want us to make a commitment here and now to write letters to the king, to stand up for our people. Ebony, if you'll play just a little bit, the first two minutes will be great. And we'll just walk and listen. Thy various works, imperial queen, we see. How bright their forms, how decked with pomp by thee. Thy wondrous acts and beauteous orders stand, And all attest how potent is thine hand. From helicons with fulgent heights attend, Ye sacred choir, and my attempts befriend, To tell her glories with a faithful tongue, Ye blooming graces, Triumph in my song. Now here, now there, the roving fancy flies, Till some loved object strikes her wondering eyes, Whose silken fetters all the senses bind, And soft captivity involves the mind. Imagination, who can sing thy force? Or who describe the swiftness of thy course, Soaring through air to find the bright abode, The imperial palace of the thundering god, We on thy pinions can surpass the wind, And leave the rolling universe behind. From star to star the mental optics rove, Measure the skies and range the realms above, there, in one view, we grasp the mighty whole, or with new worlds amaze the unbounded soul. Ah. <laughs> mm. Vanessa, she was a cosmonaut. I mean, that kind of reminded me of Lovecraft Country. I know you and I got yes. to talk about it, but she just told us to look to the sky, arrange the stars, essentially, and see the whole. When I tell you that ever since we've been doing even Daughters of, we have been telling the world that there is a solution already here for us and that we've been telling Black women that our foremothers came to leave behind all the knowledge. And what I heard from her is to look to the sky to see the whole, there is a message there for us, something there for us to connect with. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Whew. 
Well, Phyllis Wheatley, we honor you today. You know, one of the questions that I wanted to talk about and I encouraged all of us to talk about is even if you don't have any words, Vanessa, sometimes this world, it's just like heavy on our throats. Even that chakra, that area, it's hard to even express ourselves, much less come with these poetic and beautiful words, which I know is... No, Morgan, can I say something? When you were just describing children not having imagination and when your call to action was for us to activate our imagination... True story is September of last year, I started working with a life coach. If people have been listening, they will follow and know. And one of her first assignments to me was to write down my vision. And now this seems simple. She even gave me the simple assignment of categories, write it down in health, write it down in time. When I tell you it took me maybe seven or eight months to even be able to articulate that I didn't even have any imagination around the own possibilities of my life beyond work. And that all of the things that I could think of laddered back to Girl Trip, which is really important to me, obviously, but that my imagination and the possibilities of what could be was just so stilted by the everyday demands of life, by the choices I had already made, which I felt were choices that were not reversible. My imagination was stuck within the compounds and the boundaries of the longitude and latitude of my marriage or the economics of my situation or all sorts of things. But I literally couldn't actually articulate any vision for my life. I would sit down. I would try to type it. I would try to write it. I got all the notebooks. I got the color pens. I got the little markers. I'm going to do it on a vision, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I was stuck in this place where I didn't have any imagination for what was possible. So I love the assignment of pushing every single person who is listening and walking with us today to push our imaginations around our own lives and what is possible. The possibilities don't have to be grand in the way that other people measure grandness. They don't have to be successful in the other way that people measure success, but they should be truly from the depths of all things are possible for me. And if I believe all things are possible for me? What would I like to articulate to my God or the universe or to myself to believe in? That assignment I really appreciate because it's not easy to have imagination around your own life. And I didn't have it for a long time. Because imagination is closely tied with faith. We all have to just remember that the universe is conspiring every single moment. I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened three times For me today, Vanessa, this morning I woke up, I did yoga with Jerry. He went and started getting ready for work. I sat down. I didn't even know what I was going to do. Was I going to meditate? Was I going to pray? I just got my glasses, got the Bible, got some stuff. Really, I was just sitting in the sun. And I started thinking about all sorts of things. And I started thinking about Nefertiti. And I was thinking about when Jerry and I were doing yoga together, our bodies were paralleled and we are the same size. Like our feet are the exact same size. And there was something so beautiful about the masculine and feminine, the play between us. He has beautiful femininity and I have beautiful masculinity. And I was thinking about androgyny. I was thinking about Nefertiti and her husband. I was like, I wonder if androgyny is the future. It's a long story, but stick with me. I was like, I wonder if androgyny is the future. Is that the absolute? of distinction because God is love and distinction is fear and reduction and God is expansive. And I was really thinking this this morning and Prince is the most androgynous person I know and is perhaps the most evolved human who ever lived. This is what I'm thinking this morning as I'm sitting in front of my Bible to read. I was like, how come the women in my family say be in this world, but not of this world? Isn't that distinction? And I was like, God, like maybe I'll talk about that on Black History Boot Camp. How can you be in this world, but not of this world? I don't even understand what that means. Vanessa, in the spirit of African divination, I opened up the Bible. I was like, well, let me just read something. (laughs) 
Mm -hmm. I opened up the Bible. It opened up to Psalms, the first chapter. And it says when you're walking, I don't know what it says. Somebody tell me, but it says basically you cannot walk with the ungodly is what it says. You cannot sit with the ungodly. It says because God has laws of the earth, of the planet, the sun rising every morning. There is a law, there is an order, there is an imagination to the universe, and you better get in line with that flow. Don't get distracted by anything that is destructive. It answered my question immediately. Psalms 1 and 1. I never even have read it before. Psalms 1 and 1. Whatever it says is the answer to my question. That happened. Then, Vanessa, we got on the call, and Rael was like, yo, we need to rewrite all these Wikipedia pages. I had literally just wrote it down. Start the boot camp by telling people to rewrite Phyllis Wheatley. Then the third thing, we got on a call and we had been struggling yesterday, thinking about our data systems, whatever. We were like, we need the best grassroots movement. Somebody on the call today was like, I know the person who did Obama's grassroots movement. Today, when I tell you that the universe will conspire if you name it, name it, write it down, say it out loud, ask, please, beg, literally prostrate yourself out on the floor in the sunshine and let it be known what you are asking for and what you need in your life. It's necessary now, y'all, because this is spiritual warfare. It's necessary now. So I was saying all that. This is going to sound ghetto, Morgan. This is going to sound ghetto. And I'm not going to get into the details, but one, I am ghetto. So I believe in this too. And I was just giving somebody an example on Valentine's Day, my new boo. I was like, well, God must have known that I prayed with specificity and started writing with specificity that my gift on Valentine's Day was a massage while eating ribs, meaning I had to massage with the rib bone in my hand. And I was like, only me and God know and understand what type of loving I need. And then my loving is an actual massage with the rib bone in my hand. God bless all the wind times and all that other stuff. But I was laughing with specificity. I have started to get specific about the things I need and without shame or without anything, just be like, I need this God. I need this thing. I need this other thing. I need this thing. And I believe once you start to articulate it as well, I will respond to you. But it also made me think about our names, Vanessa. If we're being specific about our lives, one of the most constant themes throughout all of the editions of Black History Bootcamp is Black women calling themselves the names that they want to be called. And I just thought about Phyllis Wheatley. When you were talking about being trapped by your work, I was like, here is a child who was named after a slave ship and the people who bought her, who then... They recognized she was a genius. They exploited her genius and paraded her around like an anomaly. She became the most famous woman in the world. And in that, her name almost became her prison. Do you understand what I mean? So even when she was free, the thought of changing her name from a slave ship and owner did not seem like an option, I'm guessing, to her. She didn't even have money at the time. It didn't seem like an option. And I was like, in her honor, we better all evaluate our names. And I've been making all kinds of excuses because I've been like, well, I love the Morgan family. And for generations, the Morgan family then did this and overcame and all this stuff. And oh my God, in my marriage and Dixon, and I love that. And I've just been thinking about my name, Vanessa. And that's so vulnerable to think yeah. about, is this the name that points to who I want to be? And shout out to Sandria Washington, who's been doing so much work. She's a Girl Trek organizer. She's been doing so much work on Black adoption. And she talked about even when she was born out of Chicago, even when she was born on her birth certificate, it was first name blank, last name blank. Her entire life, she's been defining her identity for herself. And I'm just saying, y'all, I'm tired of last name blank for all of us. 
So if you have ideas, if you've changed your name, if you have a personal story around your name, if your first name means something and you're really proud of that, tell us those stories on Black History Bootcamp. Let's evaluate and interrogate our names and use that as the first source of our own imaginations. Because guess what? If it's traumatizing for you, you can change it. Funny Call because yourself how you want to be called. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes. Just yesterday I saw this. Everyone should go listen back to the Tina Turner episode that we did. I think we did that in series one, but I just saw Tina Turner has a new documentary coming out and it's like the first one where she's actually involved in telling the story. The clip I saw yesterday was her talking about her name in particular. And so this theme around naming ourselves, claiming ourselves, taking ownership of our names. We've talked about it before and it just reminded me of the Tina Turner episode. Even when she was talking about that in the clip I was watching yesterday, this is so important because name gives you so much rootedness and it gives you so much purpose. My birth certificate says father unknown, even though I know who that man is, but it says father unknown in the blank. And yet my grandfather, who never had any biological children, gave me my name. And I was thinking about this just yesterday when I was watching the Tina Turner episode. And I was like, I love my name so much. And it's one of the few things I've had in my life. My name has been a best representation of who I am. And somehow because it came from my grandfather, who his whole life never had any children, and then met my grandmother and later in life, who already had 11 children and grandchildren. And the one opportunity he got to name somebody, he named them Vanessa Renee. And I held on to that so much in it means so much to me and my legacy. Everybody deserves that. And so even if you have to rename yourself right now in this moment today, because your name isn't associated with something that you love, it's okay. It's okay. Let that go and pick something up new. Yeah. And in the spirit of Tina Turner, if you have carved out a space for your name, if you have defined yes. and redefined yourself like Phyllis Wheatley and Tina Turner did, even from the most horrid origins of your name, claim that too. Vanessa got on Google with me one time and she was like, who is Morgan Woodyard? I was like, I'm trying on a new name. That was my seventh great grandma's name. I said, I think it was a plantation, but you know, it carried on for four, five generations. And I think that's a strength. <laughs> about this on one of the last episodes when I was on that Africatown town hall that my friend from Seattle had invited me to and all the materials he updated the name to say Vanessa Smith Garrison which was my maiden name that was bold of him that was bold I think he just decided that well there's nobody know who Vanessa Garrison is post Seattle and we trying to rock with the Vanessa Smith who we grew up with and understand therefore I have combined these two names for you and put them out on every flyer and then I had to sit with that because I know you've been in the same space I've built an entire career off of a name yeah. for my ex-husband who I'm no longer married to and I really yeah. had to think to myself like when people google me I'm gonna need them to see my receipts it's hard as women to navigate that space and imagine how hard it was for someone like Phyllis Wheatley to live her whole life named after the slave ship that brought her across the Atlantic. Yeah. And it reminds me of yesterday when we were talking about matrilineal naming. So even as we name our yeah. daughters, thinking about this as legacy, because mm-hmm. I know all of y'all on ancestor, African ancestry, trying to find your stuff because that's just what everybody doing now. And it's so hard with women because of marriage and married names to even find who women are. It's so hard. So it's something that we should just continue to think about and pray about because our names are so powerful. Sorry, went a little over today, but there's so much to talk about. I didn't even get to all of it, but oh my God, we got to the juicy part. Y'all. I'm going to change my name to Vanessa G, Morgan. It's just going to be Vanessa. And they're going to be like, is that girl track? Or is this something else? It's just going to be D like X. If you ain't got no names, y'all. Right, just Vanessa G. Just G for girl track, G for something. G for gangsta. Exactly. (laughs) 
And I'm going to be Morgan Woodyard because that sounds like a filmmaker. And I'm pretty sure it sounds it like Steven Spielberg. That's going to be my next dream for my life is to make powerful films about all of these stories that we're talking about. So let's do it, Vanessa. I'll hold you to it. All right, y'all. Let's end with a little Tracy Chapman. Do not expect um, me to put Chapman. on no mute when Tracy Chapman is singing because i got to <laughs> sing along. <laughs> okay. All right. Be well, everyone. We're doing talking bit about time. a revolution. <laughs> Yeah, is that what we're doing? Is that the time we're doing? Don't you know we're talking about a revolution? Sounds Don't you know we're talking about a revolution? Sounds they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know, talking about a revolution it Sounds Poor people gonna rise up and get their share We're gonna rise up and take what's there. Don't you know you better run, 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 Oh, I said you better run, 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 run. Cause finally the tables are starting to turn. Talking about the revolution.